we've been looking at the last few days of Jesus' life for quite a while, and we've really been digging, digging in. We're not going to be spending a whole lot of, or covering a whole lot of verses this morning, but we're going to also be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and then eventually we will uh, be in Hebrews chapter 11. But we're, we're starting off in verse 1 there in Mark chapter 16, verse, or excuse me, verse 12 in Mark chapter 16. It says, After that he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. So what has happened to this point is Jesus has come in in the triumphal entry. He cleared out the temple. He's been questioned by some leaders. He's healed some people. And then he had the Last Supper with his disciples. He was betrayed that night. He was arrested. He was put on trial three different times unfairly and unlawfully. And then he was beaten. He was mocked and he was hung on a cross to die. And after that, he was buried. And that was important. We talked about that. But last week, we saw what happened early on that Sunday morning. A group of ladies came, and they wanted to embalm his body out of love for him. And they felt like, well, maybe he didn't get embalmed. And and so they came willing to risk their lives to love on Jesus. And what did they find? They found the tomb open, and Jesus was no longer there. And they ran back. And then Peter and John came, and they looked in, and they saw the clothes laying there like someone had just raised out of these clothes or out of these, these dressings, these embalming dressings. But a woman hung around. Her name was Mary, and Mary got to see Jesus. And the thing is, when she saw Jesus, she ran back, and she, the reports were, the tomb's empty, the tomb's empty, and the others aren't believing it. And then Mary comes back, and she says, I've seen him. I've even held him. Remember, she was holding on to him. Jesus, I got other things to do. Let me go. And she goes, and they didn't believe her. And then it goes on to say in verse 12, after that, after he appeared to Mary, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. Now, we know that that Mark is abbreviated in in some of its stories because he's talking to the Romans. And and they don't want necessarily, they don't want the facts, you know, they're people of action. But we have a little bit more about this particular encounter that is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, And it reads, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus. And this would be Sunday, the first day, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was that while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? Now, I think Jesus knew what happened. But this isn't Jesus just trying to trick people. This is a form of education questioning, asking people and listening. And it's important to learn to listen. My wife always reminds me of this because I'm paid to talk, (laughs) right? I'm a professional talker. And so I'm trying to learn to listen more. But Jesus just wanted to know where their hearts were at. And so he questions them. 
And what happens as it goes along? It says in Luke 24, verse 19, the second half, it says, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And a certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and they found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so Jesus rebukes them like, don't you get it? And we look at him like, don't you get it? Because we have hindsight. And hindsight is said to be 2020 because we see how it all worked out. But understand, when they look at the Old Testament scriptures, they see a Messiah who's victorious, and they see a Messiah who's suffering. And as we look back and we understand and we live uh, past this point of the, the, the death and resurrection, and we have the writings and the interpretations of the teaching of Jesus by the disciples and those that were close to him, we have a lot fuller picture, don't we? But they were a little confused because they thought the Messiah would come in a victorious way and physically rescue them and redeem them. But the Messiah first needed to come and take care of the bigger enemy, their sin within themselves, right? You can never get away from that. And that was the, key, the thing keeping them from eternal life. The Romans couldn't keep them from eternal life. It was their sin that was keeping them from intimacy with God and eternal life. And so that's what Jesus came the first time to do. So it was a little confusing to them, and understandably so. And so Jesus deals with their unbelief, but how does he do it? He opens the Old Testament scriptures, and he starts explaining, wouldn't you have loved to be in that Bible study? And so in their minds, light bulbs and explosions would have been going off, because in the Jewish culture, you were taught the Old Testament. And, and things would have been pull, pulled back together. You think about Paul. When Paul writes and teaches and goes around, um, he's, he's taking his information from the Old Testament because he's living and writing the New Testament. But he's going back and going, oh my gosh, oh yeah, oh yeah. And he's pulling all these things together to show that the law and the prophets of the Old Testament point exactly to Jesus Christ. And Jesus was sharing these things with these men. And it goes on in verse 24, or excuse me, verse 28 in chapter 24 of Luke. And it says, then they drew near to the village where they were going. And he indicated that he would have gone farther. It was like he was going to just keep on walking. But they constrained him saying, abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. And outside the major cities, there were a lot of robbers and they're worried about him. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. So he's in his new body. That's pretty cool. These new bodies can go, right? 
But what was the indicator? Well, the indicator was probably as he stretched out his hands, we know that later on Thomas was able to touch the scars in his hands. So they probably saw that and everything came together at that moment. In verse 32, it goes on to say, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? And even though they were blind to it, when they were hearing the truth of God, their heart burned and resonated with God. As my wife and I have been uh, reading through the scriptures, sometimes when, when, you, when you read through the scripture, you're, you're just kind of like, yeah. There's no commentary you give. It just resonates, right? You're like, yeah, you get it. Like, this is good. And it resonates in your heart. And so they're saying this, didn't, didn't our hearts burn? Didn't we just agree and, and understand in such a greater way as, as he walked with us? Verse 33, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now back to Mark as he tells us how the disciples responded to their story. Remember, he just said he appeared to these two guys who were on the way. So that's a deeper story we got behind it. So back in Mark 16, verse 13, it says, and they went and told the rest, but they did not believe them either. <laughs> Later, he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He's like, come on guys, how many witnesses do I need to send you before you actually believe, right? So the rebuke was real and, the, and even that, that, that Greek word is a different word that's used in a lot of places because he would gently correct them. This time he's going, you guys have a big problem. You have unbelief and hardness of heart. Were these guys believers in God? They were, but they were rebuked. We can fall into this hardness of heart. We can fall into times when we're, we're saved, but we're not really trusting in what God says. And it's like, eh, I got this, God. I'm going to do it my way, right? And these are scary things. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at that. So they had hard hearts. One of the ways, and I think the way that they hardened their hearts was disappointment because they had expectation for one thing and they got another. But that other thing was also in the realm of possibility because Jesus was telling them, and also the Bible teaches a suffering Savior. Read Isaiah chapter 53, right? And so they had this great disappointment. For us, sometimes we, we, we pull back and we harden our hearts because people disappoint us, don't they? And we don't want to risk loving or trusting anybody else ever again. It says that Moses made a law for divorce. Why? Because of hard hearts. And this can happen. It develops in relationship. And so these had a disappointment in God. Things didn't turn around the way they wanted them to. You know, the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and they had hard hearts. Why? They were thirsty and they didn't have water. They were hungry and all they had was this stuff called manna. And they complained against God. Their hearts were hardened. Did they have any reason not to believe that God would provide? He had provided to this point. They'd seen, you know, Pharaoh's army wiped out after he had led them through on dry ground through this body of water in a crazy, miraculous way. He brought the plagues on Pharaoh and, 
the group of slaves were able to walk free out of the most powerful country on earth at that time. They had no reason not to believe it. What happened? They were thirsty, their hearts got hard, and they disbelieved God, and they started complaining. So the disciples had just gone through the biggest disappointment ever, and their hearts had gotten hard. Listen, this is something that we so often do because hardening your heart is one of our natural defense mechanisms. When we've been hurt or disappointed, we harden our heart. But does God want you to have a hardened heart or a soft heart? He wants us to have a soft heart. This new covenant was built around a soft heart. Ezekiel 36, prophesying, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take away the heart of stone, your hard heart, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So when a person is born again, they have the opportunity to have a soft heart. And I would say again and again and again and again and again and again. Because I tell you what, it is so much easier for me to have a hard heart towards people as far as my emotions go, as far as my sleep pattern goes, as far as my attitude goes sometimes. But does the Lord want me to have a hard heart? Does he want me to write off people? Does he? And no one disappoints me more than I disappoint God. Right? Because he knows everything that I do. He knows my attitude. He knows what I know, and I still blow it. Right? Like, I disappoint God all the time, and I'm sure glad that he doesn't develop a hard heart towards me. And so now I'm supposed to exemplify God, but it happens. It is knocking at the door of all of us to harden our heart and protect ourselves against making ourselves vulnerable through through what? Love. Because love makes you vulnerable and love makes you able to hurt. And you can shut yourself off and create a hard heart. It looks different in some people. Some people are very aggressive and someone hurts them and they start hating them and yelling at them and aggressively having a hard heart. You know, and others, you know, just pull away. That's more my style. I'll pull away and just harden my heart silently. But a hard heart is a hard heart, and it's not exemplifying the heart of God. God has a heart that loves no matter what, even though people reject him. He loved you before you first loved him, right? And so I'm able to tell people because God has taught my heart to do this. It's never a waste of time to love even at times when you know you're going to be disappointed. Why? Because you're exemplifying the heart of God. And when your heart gets hard, you go back to God and you say, break my heart and make me, give me a heart of flesh once again. Or if you've loved and your heart's been broken, what do you do? You say, God, heal my broken heart. I don't know how many times God has healed my heart. And, and I don't do this too much anymore, but kind of in the guts of ministry, I'd, I'd grown to the place where I didn't write people off and I was learning how to love as a pastor and, and, and the Lord was maturing me as a pastor and I would love people and then they would break my heart and I would be so angry and, and, and everything. But, but the Lord would say, no, that's not the kind of pastor I need. In fact, that's not a pastor at all. Love that person even though they're hurting you. And you know who heals my heart every time? But in that process, you know, it was like my wife and I would look at each other like weekly and go, we're done, we can't do this. <laughs> you know, like, can't get my heart broken ever again. But our heart is broken all the time. Why? Because we love. But we're becoming more like the Lord. 
Do I do it perfectly? Absolutely not. Does, the God ha- does God have to soften my heart towards people every once in a while? Oh, yeah. And he does, and I let him do it. And you know, I'm such in a better place. It's so much better to walk with a heart that's been broken time after time after time after time after time and walk in the character of Christ and in deeper fellowship with him because I'm seeking to follow his character than it is to have a hard heart and have all my emotions protected and and, and just be stoic. It is so much better to be broken and close to God than to be strong and firm in a worldly way and be far from God, right? And man, I tell you, there's so many things and people and there's so many things out there to hate, right? This world is nuts, and it's getting nuttier. And there was one time when, you know, the basic principle was the the things of God are good principles, even though I don't believe in God, you know. But now the world's flat out against everything that is from God, that God made good for us to enjoy. And, And God calls us to still care and to love. So that first point, watch out for hard hearts. The Lord loves to fix your heart. Now, the other thing he rebukes him for is is not a hard heart, but a lack of faith. God wants us to have faith. God doesn't want us to be gullible and stupid. He wants us to be wise, but he also wants us to have faith. And so our faith is based on things that we can know and calls us out into things that we can't possibly know. Would you say that mortgage companies are churches? They're not, are they? But do they walk in faith? Absolutely. How do they do that? They get your report, they look it up on the internet, and they look at your history, something they can know. And then quite possibly they choose to loan you money thinking you'll pay it back, something they can't possibly know. But they're basing their faith on the fact that you'll return the money on the facts that they can know that you have been faithful in the past. And so as I walk in the Lord and as I grow further, I, I experience God, and he's been faithful in the past through experience. The word of God is faithful, as I understand it in a proper fashion and interpret it correctly. And so I'm able to step out and go, okay, God, you're going to be faithful again. And I can step out in faith. That's what faith is. It's stepping into what you don't know. It's hoping in that thing that you haven't received. But it isn't based on just blind faith. People say blind faith. I'm like, what do you mean blind faith? But God is faithful and he's proven himself faithful. We have the sure word of God and we have the sure word of prophecy and we have archaeology and textural criticism and all kinds of things that prove the word of God to be true plus our own experiences and the Lord living in our heart. But he looks at these guys and he says, you guys have unbelief or lack of faith, and that can be a huge problem. Don't be fools. Check things out. The Lord tells us, test all things and hold on to that which is true. And understand truth is okay with being tested. But also understand there's a point where you step out in faith because you can't possibly know. And so they do work together. And so these guys had one, two, three, four witnesses amongst themselves who they've been living with or around for the last three years who have good character or sold out for God, and they're getting these witnesses, and they still don't believe. This is why they're rebuked harshly, because the Lord is worried about their future. Right? The first time, eh, you know, I don't know. I'd like to see it for myself. 
But the Lord rebukes that unbelief because it is so important for us to have faith in God. The Bible says of faith, it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. New Living Translation, a commentary basically on this verse. What is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. But again, it isn't blind hope. It's hope in those things that the Lord has told us were going to happen. So it's not faith in faith. It's faith in the Lord being faithful, right? It is that hope. It's believing that God is able and willing and faithful to fulfill what he has promised. In the Old Testament, someone that was saved was someone that believed in God. And that led them to give sacrifices and things like that. But their faith was the important thing. How was Abraham saved before Jesus? He believed God or had faith in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. And he was able to do and wanting to do what he said he would do. And he believed God. He had faith in God. Now, some people present faith in a different way, and you need to be careful and wise about this. Some people say, well, if you believe in God, everything will go away, and you'll be living in a rose garden with unicorns. You know, it's like, no. When you believe in God, some problems do go away because those problems are caused by overt sin and wrong thinking, and now you have the Bible at your hands, and you can start thinking in a, in a better direction. But Many times those problems don't go away your whole life, but faith will carry you through because you have a hope in heaven where everything is healed and reconciled. But God loves our show of faith. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder for those who diligently seek him. God loves our faith. Why? Because it makes him feel better or because he loves us and he knows it's the best place for us to be. But a faith like this does produce results. You don't do results to produce faith. You have faith that produces results that then produce more faith. We'll talk about that in a, in a moment. But once you trust in God for salvation, the Holy Spirit enters you. You're sealed. You, you've now been given ability in God and power in God and you know, this wisdom and this knowledge from above, and you, you now know God, the creator of the universe, and you think anything's going to change? Everything changes. All things have become new, Second Corinthians chapter 5 tells us. So it will produce something different, evidence of good things. And when you get saved, your old friends or family members will go, what in the world happened to you? And they should. You're weird, absolutely. Praise God. You tell them you're weird too, but I'm going to heaven. <laughs> For as the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without works dead also. So faith without works is dead. It doesn't mean that you have works to bring forth faith, but if you have faith, everything is changed. You believe in God and you believe what he says is true is true and that he's going to do what he said he would do and he's able to and wanting to do that. That changes everything, and the Lord loves to see that in your life and everything 
changes. So we act differently once we have faith, and then we get this endurance that helps us pursue through our trials in life. Why? Because there's promises that haven't been fulfilled yet. And there's incredible promises. And again, God has been faithful in the past. We can certainly believe that he'll be faithful 